being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong yeah because i think we had talked about the reasons for mcveigh leaving and the different stories he told well i think we had touched on what he appeared to have been doing and what networks he was interacting with and the activities he was getting into, but I'm not sure if we had nailed down everything we wanted to say about that. Yeah. Yeah. He, he leaves, he leaves Buffalo and goes on what I call, I think of as his bombing odyssey and, and the mm-hmm. first person. Well, and then the reasons he gives are conflicting, but a lot of it is telling people I'm going to, tell different stories, a lot of which seem to involve doing some kind of work for the military or in that capacity, but he's always very vague about it. And uh, he's also saying like to his best friend, he's saying like, look, I have to go, I'm going to an undisclosed location. This might be our last communication for a long time. He warns big brother will lock you up and that he some to, he too someday might be labeled schizophrenic and locked up and someday people might come looking for him, perhaps even people from Calspan. He actually, that part, he tells you a Calspan employee. So he mm. has, but at that point, like he's physically like deteriorating. Everyone at least, you know, at home knows that, can see that he's like sick and he's going he's still going to the doctor a lot as as he does and the and has as he has been since the army um so yeah he goes he meets roger moore but um he uh he starts sending letters home during like he's now he's just kind of traveling the country ostensibly on the gun show circuit and meeting lots of different people but in the, in the same time period he is sending home letters saying that like he's being tracked and followed and watched and um mcveigh's mother believed that they had been of course we talked about her proclivity to this belief anyways early on in mcveigh's life but she mm-hmm. believed that uh that her son had been being monitored and people out in kingman have told me like yeah we knew mcveigh uh, like he was clearly being watched sometimes they didn't even try to hide it like um which is weird you know i don't know quite what to make of it but in that but um you know mcveigh starts using keeping multiple driver's licenses alternate license plates um opening up mailboxes in different states using different aliases he starts using a calling card to communicate. Mm. Um, he shows up uh, at different places of interest, including the headquarters of the militia of Montana, whose leader, by the way, is a friend of Roger Moore. Uh, and also, there are claims that that Moore tried to set, his name is John Trockman, the militia montana leader that more tried to set him up with weapons as as more does like that's more thing mm-hmm. but uh mcveigh ends up out there where he's introduced to people including one area nations member as a mercenary that's a quote a mercenary named sergeant mac like that was the name he was using when he shows up there um mm. while at the militia of montana headquarters he 
he brags that he knew Tom Robb, the leader of the KKK chapter in Arkansas. And indeed, they don't know this, but I know this, that McVeigh had filled out an application to become a member of that very same KKK chapter just a few months earlier, while he's at the militia of Montana under the name Sergeant Mack. Um, McVeigh is with a man and <laughs> with, quote, a heavy German accent. And, <laughs> and that's, that's, that's that, because the FBI somehow, although that's all in a 302, the FBI doesn't, or I've never seen anything to show there was an interest in that little factoid. <laughs> he's using, like I said, he's using various many aliases, some of which are more long lasting and some he seems to only use a little bit. Some seem to like stick, like the Tim Tuttle alias. He, he's pretty, he's kind of, he loves that one. Um, but it, it's also variations on his name, like Tom Sneed, Tim Sneed, Tim McGay, <laughs> E-G-I-E, -E, I don't know. <laughs> McEgy, McGay, Tim McNay, Tim McVeigh, but V E Y, you know, Tim Johnson. So it's like probably ones that might be easy to remember or something. Um, yeah. So, so McVeigh, we're jumping ahead, but like basically prior to Waco, that's what he's doing. He's just now roaming around the country, showing up at places, places who Roger Moore is often connected to. Um, yeah, that's an interesting time period, actually. Uh, uh, so, yeah, was it Waco? Well, yeah, do you want to, anything about Waco? Yeah, I know you've been recently looking. I was just going to be like, what's the deal with Waco? <laughs> <laughs> what's up with Waco? <laughs> what isn't the deal, right? <laughs> yeah, Waco yeah right so i mean and i don't want to reinvent the wheel here like anyone could read about waco but uh the atf initiates this investigation of a religious sect in waco texas the branch davidians and they live communally on a plot of land called mount carmel and the other leader david koresh often bought semi-auto weapons at wholesale prices and sold them for profit including by Barry, who I talked about, like he, he bought weapons from our friend mm -hmm. Barry. So, although at any time the ATF could have asked to inspect his weapons, in the words of later congressional investigation report, before pursuing traditional avenues of investigation, the ATF decides to, quote, pursue a military style raid or dynamic entry on Mount Carmel, um, although the federal magistrate denied uh, their first request for a warrant, three weeks later, based on misleading and factually inaccurate statements, um, they, they do obtain this warrant. And in order to help their case, I guess, in the media to sell it, the ATF and later FBI began to characterize Davidians in internal reports into the media as a dangerous extremist organization and a cult. Mm. The ATF at one point concocts a story about a meth lab operating out of there, a fabrication that 
under operational alliance allowed Joint Task Force 6 to pursue military to provide military assistance for the raid. Mm. Um, which kind of takes us back to that whole National Guard PETCON North Star GT6 GTF6 stuff. Yeah. And like that's not very clearly reported in that many sources, but it is true, right? I mean, it's like yeah, Soldier of Fortune and then a few other places, but it's like not something that like people really want to talk about, right? No, and it's yeah, I mean, it's it's reported and it's reported in, in what I believe are credible sources. Otherwise, I yeah. couldn't have included it. Like I would have to bust out the end notes, but they're in there. Um, and I mean, also like there, there were investigations and trials after. So there's a paper on, on this and right. But at the time, no one would have understood. Like you wouldn't say in the media, Operational Alliance or Jet Joint Task Force Six, because of course, nobody really wants this. Yeah. Because yeah. Jesus, if the scope of like what they were doing really, like. That would be unwise um, publicity for <laughs> for them. Um, even though it comes out later, by that point everyone's gone moved on. Um, but what the the treasury calls, so so when they get this um, warrant and this, uh, they're going to do this dynamic entry. Uh, thus begins what the Treasury Department describes as, quote, the largest enforcement effort ever mounted by ATF and one of the largest in the history of law enforcement at that time. Hmm. So they they start flying uh, military surveillance aircraft over, over Mount Carmel. And on February 28, 93, 80 federal agents decked out in full con combat gear, camo fatigues, Kevlar helmets, flak jackets, and wielding submachine guns, semi-auto, and sniper rifles and grenades uh, show up, all while military Black, Hel- Black Hawk helicopters fly overhead. Um, so a firefight ensues, um, which is like, the ballistics of that is interesting. I'm not going to get into it. A firefight ensues by it, it appears the, the Davidians did not start this firefight, but uh, what happens ultimately is that uh, six Davidians and four ATF guys end up dead. Thus, mm. then, begins a 50-day standoff and a stunning display of federal power, including Abrams' tank and much to McVeigh's dismay, uh, Bradley fighting vehicles and those earth movers that were used in the bulldozer assaults. Interesting. I didn't think about it from that perspective. So if you're to, like, even if you just believe like the whole lone wolf story and oh, McVeigh's mad at Waco, like you can imagine at least in some part of his mind when he sees that shit, like that's got to be disturbing. Mm-hmm. Like he knows he buried bodies in the desert. You know, he he saw all that happening. Like. Now he's seeing this happen at home. And I do believe that he, in fact, I, I know it was greatly disturbed because often like people have said like, yeah, as soon as he started about, talking about Waco, he would like just cheer up. Like it was a trigger. Um, 
I mean, he really legitimately, I do believe, was disturbed by what was happening there during the so they show up with 800 now they've got 800 federal and state agents and military personnel all like all there and uh they start dehumanize they they start in the media dehumanizing the davidians mm-hmm. and talking about molesting of children an earlier investigation had found the mo child abuse charges baseless but either way all they had to do was wait for David Koresh to like walk out to his mailbox and grab him. Like all of this was a spectacle and all of it was unnecessary. Mm-hmm. So at that at that point, <laughs> much rhetoric uh, and false info cite, being cited by the media originated with spokespeople from the Cult Awareness Network. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Oh, I've just heard some things about the Cult Awareness Network. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I I don't know enough off the top of my head to actually really be able to, like, you know, discuss it, but, like, real spooky folks. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. Apparently, they're, they, they started as a support group for parents whose children had run off to join non-traditional religious groups probably like somewhat like Jack Oliphant's people in in the Florida stage but it quickly became a lobbying group um, whose primary mission was to combat (laughs) quote mind control and brainwashing um, that these cults or religious groups are using Um, but the term brainwashing and actually the term cult is a dubious one that is not well defined and eventually many lawsuits would come out about can's violation of human and civil rights because they would to, to counter the brainwashing and break the hypnotic trance the, the the cult members were under they would um, employ controversial message me- methods including kidnapping Mm-hmm. involuntary deprogramming using the exact methods the brainwashers like they're saying the brainwashers are using so listen wendy like just like how it takes a good person with a gun to stop a bad person with a gun sometimes it takes a, a good brainwasher to stop a bad brainwasher oh my god ah, <laughs> when you said that i meant you know spy versus spy like <laughs> I just imagine those little guys as brain, yeah, brainwashers. I guess, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, right. Yes, I guess. Um, yeah, because sometimes you gotta beat drug and sexually assault non-compliant individuals like, to help them. Mm-hmm. So that hype, that like kind of hyped up language, like helped rally the larger public. Like, oh my god, I can't believe this this cult we must stop this but like you know the little details of this are not obviously being reported however that it the left and the right at this point kind of rallied to waco like they both seem you know civil libertarians generally like we're like this is fucked up mm-hmm. they're getting into cult so a lot of people were like at this point now we're in the siege and a lot of people are flocking to Waco of many kinds of people from different groups on, on, on a spectrum of things. 
And one of the people that shows up is a woman named Linda Thompson, who is a self-proclaimed acting adjunct general of the unorganized militia of the United States. And she, she's out there talking to the media and she's rallying the patriots to assemble with, with guns and aircraft and anything they have available. Uh, like So in some way, reinforcing the vision that the media was trying to depict, even though the Davidians were never out there calling for stuff like this. Like mm-hmm. she shows up and she's important in a second. She becomes important, but she's there. So McVeigh hears about the siege and he heads out to Waco. And uh he takes like he's just and he's out there and there's footage of him and like at one point a journalist even talks to him and uh He's just selling bumper stickers on the on the out of the back of his car and just talking to people and hanging out. Always be closing. <laughs> the Davidians are an interracial sect, like, but that didn't stop some more public relations savvy white supremacists from showing up at Waco at the same time that Mc, McVeigh is there, including Louis Beam, a mm. master propagandist for an ambassador at large of Aryan nations. Um and McVeigh himself adds to the faces, like he he talks about the people, the highly visible, well-known names he met while there, um, including, huh, I forgot about this, but including Bogreitz. Mm. Yeah. So siege is ongoing. For some reason, McVeigh has to leave. Like, I don't know what he had some business to do. So he goes back up to Nichols' house in Michigan and he's planning on taking Nichols and going back down and on the morning, they're supposed to leave. Um, they're watching TV, and that's when the the fire the fire the fire begins that that ends up consuming. <laughs> A tactical phrasing. Yeah, I mean, I don't believe that the the videos lit themselves on fire. Okay, and I I believe that anyone that reads enough about it might probably come to that same conclusion. I mean, mm. whether you know was accidental or not um if you're busting holes in the wall and putting inflammable gas cs gas using bradley tanks into the building that's not the same thing as the davidians thinking it's the end of the world and lighting themselves on fire Mm -hmm. sorry to preach i just that's annoying no i think that uh (laughs) people will understand and I'm, I'm assuming be sympathetic to that point of view yeah 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 that's good yeah i forget you know like i guess if i was just out about in my home here like i would have to explain that yeah it's because people to this day will be like oh that you know they it was like oh it was like jim jones it was not yeah i mean i don't i didn't live at waco right like i didn't live in the, the, the Mount Carmel with them. I don't know, like the religious stuff, but it was not Jim Jones, and they did not. I do. I just don't believe they killed themselves. One of the things they were doing, I gotta say, before the fire breaks out, is that <laughs> they were um, using psi warfare tactics in what was called a stress escalation program, including blasting sounds of dying rabbits, like all through the night, and. Nancy mm-hmm. Sinatra's these boots are made for walking. 
um, and flooding them with bright lights for days on end. A lot of really weird shit. Yeah. Who's uh who's advising them on these <laughs> like cyber tactics? Some of your listeners <laughs> might have heard might have heard of a guy named Dr. Jollyan, some sometimes called Jolly West. He was rumored to be present uh, during the Waco siege, um, and he literally is the preeminent CIA psychological uh, warfare program, like. Help design it. Um, psyops were a forte of West's, as and he's writing about these things, like and he's writing about cult busting as early as 1978, um, and he's talking about ways we can bust cults up. But as everyone knows, and we'll talk about more later, West is also an expert in quote unquote brainwashing. Um, but by 1993 the time Waco was happening, West had been on a, quote, 43-year 43 43 mission to rid the world of cults. 
Um, <laughs> and sure, dude. So, while I don't have a piece of paper saying like like a like a pay stub, like oh, thanks for the consultation on how to torture mentally these people under siege, Doctor West. The people that were there were can representatives, and and can representatives were um, advising the task force, and they, uh, and so, <laughs> wow, why am I mixing up my words so much? Anyways, West has a a, a really cozy relationship with uh, the can cult awareness network. In fact, like. He's heavily cited in their literature at one point is officially part of them. Um, so whether it's through West directly or via can, uh, that's the best answer I have. Again, I have no paper on that. Yeah. All we have is the fact that they were doing something really fucking weird. And can, right. And can mm-hmm. was there and where, the fuck, where is the, it's in my book, like the link between Can and Jolly West, and they're like they love Jolly West. Can, yeah, loves Jolly Jolly West. Wasn't he on their board or something? It was a bunch of ties. Yes, yes, yeah. I'm looking at my notes, and for some reason, like I'm not. I don't know if I just my eyes are tired. I'm just not seeing it. But yeah, he was like officially part of Can. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, okay, 1983 at a Cannes conference, Wes, a highly valued member, yeah, advances the idea of developing a, quote, medical model and a device or technique through which the cancer of fake religions could be destroyed. How West decides what's real and fake, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so yeah, they're, they're waging a cyber on on the Davidians and just really like so when like early in the internet like conspiracy theorists would be like well West helped design the psychological torture used against the Davidians he he did he is like the granddaddy of these of these methods like he perfected these methods which we will we will get yeah and then of course like we would see stuff like that leveraged against like Noriega and like, I forget there was, a, I mean, Guantanamo Bay also uses like similar, yes. just like blaring pop songs and Music. so forth. Metallica. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. But the, I guess like, I mean, I don't know what songs were used and things before Waco, but they felt that Nancy Sinatra's, because probably because of the line walk all over you right mm. like let me ask you this right because i know we're speculating on the psy war against the davidians on the flip side like you hinted at essentially there's a whole element of this where it's like a spectacle perhaps designed to trigger people into yes i don't know some sort of right-wing low-intensity war or something this would make sense and like what is it like i'm I'm just free associating but it's like don't tread on me like these boots are made for walking it's almost like a direct Ugh. like correlation to that gadson flag or whatever oh, oh. no wow yeah actually yeah right good point 
Because, like, I mean, it sure seems like it triggered McVeigh or activated him or something. And, like, yeah, Lord knows that, like, between Ruby Ridge and Waco, tons of militia types were, like, really pissed off, rightfully so, in a certain sense. Yeah. Now, if you were running an operation like Petcock, who you claim was meant to well um insurrection but i hate to use that word but that then why on earth how on earth is it a good idea to ratchet it up like yeah like what game is being played like i don't understand it is a spectacle um but yeah don't tread on me right yeah, I don't know what to say this. Like, I'm just kind of like <laughs> thinking about this now, like reflecting on on this. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I could, I'm just guessing, but like maybe if the idea is you can flush out extremist types to do something and then like the conditions are not actually ripe for a revolution, you could flush it then out or something. But, like, on the flip side, maybe you could, like, intuit, like, a gladio thing where you want mm-hmm. the country to go in a more contentious civil war type mm-hmm. direction. I don't know. Foment or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Have, have ready. Mm-hmm. I mean, because in the in the interim between Ruby Ridge and Waco, like, networks are forming, right? Yeah. Maybe you want, maybe if you have certain objectives, you want those networks formed. Yeah. Like the one example I can think of is like, I did all those episodes on Japan, right? Yeah. Yeah. They had multiple instances of high profile right wing terrorism. And that they never got their way politically, but they, tended to serve the interests of right-wing politics in Japan overall because they would basically like kill like a certain politicians or like try and like they would essentially push almost like the Overton window or whatever like it just had the effect of moving Japan's politics Mm -hmm. to the far right I don't know if it's something like this going on here or if that was like at least the intended direction or something i don't i'm just speculating i mean i think that's great i need to i need to like i need to reflect on it like i really need to sit and think about that like how this would work in the context of waco and probably there's probably a point in time where i would have like been like yeah blah blah blah, but i'm I'm blanking out but i don't i don't think that this is what you're saying is i is, is like off the wall or anything i'm just trying to think of spe- very specific like how yeah because like whatever it is it doesn't make sense in the narrow definition of patcon right or you know the ostensible purpose for like running these operations it would it would increase the budget and it would increase yeah. the uh the justification for law enforcement which are the very same agencies that are and people mm-hmm. like running PatCon. So in that sense, it 
it was not what Pat Cotton's real objective is. Who knows? But like in, in one sense, just knowing that it increases these budgets is a motive. Why? Mm-hmm. Why do you need to increase the militarization of all law, domestic law enforcement, and why do they need bigger budgets when they're what? When both Ruby Ridge and Waco were not things that were happening on a national scale, there's no reason um, to inflate budgets like this and to whip up fervor and public panic um, in mm. both both instances. There's no reason, good reason. Mm. Is that like? No, I mean, like, that's good. I just was probably <laughs> getting too <laughs> galaxy brain for my own good. <laughs> well, no, I know there's something there. Um, I'm sure, like, three days from now, I'll be like, oh, duh, Wendy. But, like, what? well, one thing, like, we've got people like Linda Thompson, and I, I believe she's still alive. I actually don't know. But, like, eh, she serves a very similar function as like a bill cooper um mm. she's up she's out there and like but so are people like lewis beam Bo Grice. it's like there seems to be there's an insight there's an insight inciting function anyways whatever's happening at waco it just goes far beyond arresting david koresh mm-hmm. what that is like yeah Something weird is going on. Brain fry. Yeah, yeah. So Wake goes there. And so later, and by the way, McVeigh, there was always speculation in his defense team of like, well, how many times did McVeigh go to Waco? Because Wake McVeigh would claim to people he met on the circuit after Waco, like, I know those people. Like, I think he even told family members that, like, I, I know those people at Waco. They're not bad people. And which, like, According to like American terrorists, like the official book, McVeigh shows up at Waco, sells bumper stickers, takes off, and goes mad. But like McVeigh actually went back to Waco at least two more times, um, and that has just been confirmed to me uh, very within the last couple months by the some of the nickel stuff because now there's dates like when he went back. So. I don't even know what that means other than like that seems important to me that they kept going back there. Yeah. But also there's paramilitary camps like also in Texas. I don't know. He, I don't know. It's like one of these things where McVeigh lays a lot of paper trail which is like throughout the aberration the book but on the other hand sometimes when you really need it there's nothing. There's no, there's a gap. Hmm. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna move on from Waco and if something like pops in my head, I'll I'll come back to it. But, Mm -hmm. or if you have anything else, any questions, I just, my mind is kind of like, like wandering now, like Waco. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I want to say that there were reports that Wes was even at Waco. But now I just I just put my notes away. So 
whatever I know about that situation, except for what I just said about McVeigh's repeated visits, that is all an aberration. Like I yeah. laid it out like as extensively as I could. Um, that fiery conclusion happens April 19th, 1993, but it was just two years prior to the day of the Oklahoma City bombing. Mm-hmm. Late April 1983, this is right after really, this is right after Waco, McVeigh finds himself at a gun show in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where some of the other attendees are residents of Elohim City, including Andy Strassmeyer, um, who invites McVeigh to come visit him at mm. Elohim City. Now that's like this whole other, like we've been talking a lot about the West Coast stuff. The the Elohim City stuff has been like written about, I would suggest uh, Roger Charles' book, Oklahoma City, Why, why the Investigation Still Matters, or what the investigation missed and why it still matters. Um, you know, there's a lot out there about McVeigh and Elohim City. Um, but at that Tulsa gun, gun show, like more... McVeigh is helping man Roger Moore's booth. And so, and at that point, like they're kind of hanging out at the gun show and Moore asks McVeigh to come visit him at his Arkansas property, which is just a couple hours from the Loheen city. So he does that, but Moore, at least to the FBI says that <laughs> McVeigh was a really bad guest. He ate all our food. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, yeah. So, however, like, really, then why did you give him all the explosives? Like, if you, <laughs> you didn't like him so much. So then, like, McVeigh, McMore, McVeigh ends up back in Kingman and he's staying in Kingman. And, and this would have been like the time uh, or one of the entry points to like the Jack Oliphant stuff. But, anyways, he and Fortier go to a shooting range in Kingman where I think. Did I cover? I think we talked about this where like 48 grew up in Kingman. Like he, it's a small town and he had been there his whole life, but they go to the gun range and like McVeigh keeps signing them in under different names, even though that's weird because everyone knows it's 48 and McVeigh. <laughs> and uh, even later, 48, and I probably like sincerely is like, I don't know why he did that. But I, you know, I don't know. That's just what Forty ends up saying, but like that's where, right? Just like Saran, Saran McVeigh is just like rapid opening fire, acting extremely erratically. Like one person that was there that day said he scared the hell out of me. He pretty much went crazy, emptying on everything: trees, rocks, guns. He just went ballistic. <laughs> he's at the range, and he's like, "I'm sorry, I thought I was shooting at that. Call me JFK." <laughs> The Oswald traits. But at that when he's in Kingman, he has a uh like his answering machine is G. Gordon Liddy. It's like some recording <laughs> of G. Gordon Liddy, by the way. So McVeigh, he's using Kingman as a jumping off point. Like he's tr- still traveling the gunshot circuit, but he's kind of he keeps coming back to Kingman and using that as his jumping off point. Um in fact, like one person, an FBI informant. I don't know the like veracity of this, but in a report, it says that McVeigh attended a KKK rally in Tennessee, continues to like meet up with members of area nations. Um, 
members who are also PatCon targets, um, which is interesting. So, like, I'm just going to say, McVeigh's movements line up, and the people that he's connecting with all seem to be PatCon targets. Like, maybe McVeigh's really lucky, or, you know, he just has that kind of luck, or maybe there's something else happening here. Hmm. He starts uh, visiting a number of military installations in, in an attempt to determine how easy <laughs> it is to steal weapons and explosives. The very same thing that at this point Pat Khan is like investigating. Um, it, and he has some close scrapes with close or not close, like I don't close scrapes with with the law. Like he. Um, McVeigh adds, like, uh, on, on the, among the things he's selling at gun shows, he adds the fuse-lit flare launchers that could be converted into rocket launchers, which actually Roger Moore had designed. McVeigh said Moore had thousands, tons of these things. And McVeigh puts an ad in the racist magazine, The Spotlight, and it's by Tim Tuttle, which is one of his names. And he advertises that he's selling anti tank launcher replicas and surplus rocket launchers and he's at a gun show in Arizona and an Arizona police officer shows up to a Phoenix to this Phoenix gun show to investigate this ad of like selling rocket launchers and the man the police officer encounters identifies himself as Tim McVeigh and this Tim McVeigh is selling flare launchers and anti-ATF and F anti-FBI propaganda. But somehow in this conversation, the police officer concludes that McVeigh is not the Tuttle that placed the ad. Like there's some confusion of identity here or not. Um, but in my book, I say it's strange given when the officer asked what the flare launcher could be used for. McVeigh said it could shoot down ATF helicopters and then <laughs> demoed how to convert this into a flamethrower. Um, and McVeigh's response alarmed the officer enough that the officer reports it to the ATF and FBI, even though he doesn't think the guy is the same guy that plays the ad, he still reports to the name Tim McVeigh to the ATF and FBI. So this, again, brings us to an Oswaldian situation where there's like reports and prior yeah what it, what was the term backstopping yeah backstopping whether or not this is true or not right i mean yeah but that's one scenario and there's also mm -hmm. which i i lay out probably better than i can verbally <laughs> in the book where there's also questions of multiple McVeigh's as far as people that may be using the name yeah because even McVeigh himself was wondering like is there or at least he wonders whether there's a double but even his defense team is like how is it, are there why are, are there different McVeigh's that are in different places at the same time <laughs> and and it's not like it's just crazy people reporting this it's like it, it'll be reportings that are credible that they deem credible it becomes very confusing of why are there multiple McVeigh's I mean so there's that too which is like such a thorny double question when we talk about his uh yes. potential DID and so forth yes yeah 
It is. Because, right, is it a multiple, like, is it a multiple in him? Or is it an actual multiple person, like, flesh and, like, yeah, mm -hmm. what's going on with the doubles? Is that what you're, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Totally. And I can't answer it. You know, it's like one of those questions that I can't, I have, I, I can't, I have never resolved myself, like, I go back and forth it's, and it could be both at once. Fuck. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're now we're in the fall of 93 McVeigh is going to the soldier of soldier of fortune convention in Vegas, where he is again, manning a table for more. Who's a regular attendee of soldier of fortune. I mean, obviously he's tied in with Iron Contra guys. He's tied in with all that old timing network, you know, and, and oddly, Soldier of Fortune convention is where <laughs> um, people, a noted place to connect recruiters to enlist mercenaries for missions to third world countries, quote unquote, third world countries. Those conducted by Moore's friends, civilian military assistants, like it, like Soldier of Fortune convention apparently is this recruiting ground, including for these mercenaries that more is the paymaster for so hmm. i don't know really like <laughs> i wish i could go back in time i wish i had the time machine because i would go to the, them you know like i don't know how far it's gonna get me all these years out if i were to go to one but i wish so badly i could go back in time and just walk around you um, fly on the wall at the vegas soldier of fortune <laughs> yeah yeah i, I mean because at some at certain points like you've got McVeigh you've got more you've got known PatCon operatives you've got like the biggest faces uh, of the white supremacist movement and the militia movement like you've got like they're just they all coalesce it's like a family reunion hmm. yeah at these at these gatherings um okay so there's a guy named David Paul Hammer, I think, I believe I talked about him a little or mentioned him. He was on death row with McVeigh. He, and we'll come, and we'll talk about him more later. But he <laughs> has, uh, <laughs> I mean, or I could diverge, but he, he claims that McVeigh says that after that Soldier of Fortune convention in the fall of 93, McVeigh attends the school called the executive security international school esi in grand junction colorado where he's supposed to receive some kind of instruction or training and so i i was always intrigued by this and looked into them now one person on the internet said oh it's just like our normal security guard my girlfriend worked <laughs> for there but like this is not the case like uh, if you look at this more carefully it is maybe they do that but that is not who they are sure they might like farm some of their people out to low level security jobs but um yeah like security firms always have kind of like that dual thing because i recently looked at keeny meanie the uh the british pmc and they for right? sure did like normie like bodyguard type stuff and they also did mercenary stuff and yes wouldn't you know it was like pretty much recruiting the same people and you might like be a bodyguard and then you might be sent to like somalia or something like it's like the same pool of people 
maybe you show some promise. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Most ESI instructors, instructors are ex-special forces or former or current FBI, CIA, DEA, Secret Service, and law enforcement. <laughs> um, others are editors of Soldier of Fortune magazine. Okay. Wink. <laughs> <laughs> right. I like how one ESI instructor described it as a school for professional paranoids, which like you're <laughs> you're kind of that too, like we are, right? But yeah. I think but I wouldn't compare us to them. <laughs> We're freelance kind of freelance, <laughs> yeah. just vibes based, not like paramilitary types. Right, right. right. But a, a professional paranoid. But yeah, I mean That's hilarious. And uh and he says, like this same instructor says, the line between paranoia and awareness is very fine. Oh yeah, ooh, I love that. <laughs> Charles Manson, I think, said, "Total awareness is total paranoia." Oh shit! Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, I I get into like I try not to at home, like when I go out, you know. But every once in a while, because I, I I have like I've been pegged as you know oh she she's she's par she thinks she's paranoid like whatever i just try not to engage in that because it, it just leads to grumpiness and mm -hmm. stuff but like on my part but um look when the very fucking people themselves are saying this like there's really a fine line like paranoia and awareness and these are the people that should know because they're the ones like working in the capacity of is mm -hmm. you know like come on <laughs> i don't know i don't know what i'm trying to say but i'm i'm very personally frustrated by this conversation i end up having sometimes and, no, and it's sure. banging my head against a wall <laughs> usually i'm just like you know what i can't let just read my book okay and the like don't talk to me until you do because i can't talk to you because i can't i don't we're talking a different language for sure yeah not that my book is end all be all but like it, it's the easiest way for me to explain myself it just took a long time moving on moving on so now we're still in the fall of 93 McVeigh is supposedly like uh has attended this ESI school and that could just have been passed off as a weird story but what David Paul Hammer didn't know when he wrote this, like, let's say David Paul Hammer was making it up. But what <laughs> Paul Hammer, Hammer didn't know was that I like had all these documents. And one of them shows that at this exact same time, his, his, like his uh, McVeigh's attorneys um, realized that McVeigh had opened a mailbox in Colorado, although he never was known to spend much time there and they actually say like why would he open a mailbox in colorado but it, it's like when you overlay it it's the exact same time mm -hmm. that he may have been at esi interesting and there's also a, another strange of i didn't i took it out of my notes but there's also this other strange report at the exact same time that McVeigh's opening this mailbox where a guy meets McVeigh, but McVeigh in Colorado, and he says the name McVeigh, but V-E-Y, which he will also do later on. So he can be put in Colorado at that time. So he was there, 
Um, he also claimed he really did claim that that he was on a covert mission. So, uh, yeah. So, so there's that. <laughs> he heads off like after Colorado. He pops back over to Michigan and hangs out with uh, the Nichols family. And uh, at this point, he starts talking to like the neighbors, Nickel. Nichols' neighbors and Nichols' brother about a secret shot he got in the army, um, and all like he says his bones ached, his teeth hurt, his gums hurt. He had no energy. He was really tired. He also says he thinks the they put a tracking chip in him. And Terry Nichols' brother suggests, well, why don't you go to the hospital and find out? And McVeigh's like, well, even if they found it, they won't tell me the truth. And James Nichols goes so far as to make an appointment for him to go and get this somehow checked out, but McVeigh doesn't go. Like he, he blows it off. Um, by the way, James Nichols would later say he he believes that McVeigh was under surveillance prior to the bombing as early as Waco, and that mm. squares with what people on the other side of the country also say. You have just finished listening to an episode of Program to Chill, where I interviewed Wendy Painting. If you're listening to this, please consider donating to Wendy's coffee. What is a coffee? It's like a GoFundMe, but spelled differently. For the cost of a cup of coffee, or more if you're so inclined, you can help Wendy continue her research so we can get that second book out sooner. You can find that link in the show notes. Please support independent researchers like Wendy. And if you're listening to this on the free side, you can subscribe to my Patreon to hear these Wendy Painting interview episodes sooner than the weekly release date, as well as a whole back catalog of interesting content to make your chores easier or to make your shitty job more tolerable. Guaranteed. Thank you. God bless.